Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests, Pete Flint of NFX and Alex Tausig of Lightspeed. Alex, Pete, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Great to be here. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, guys, I want to give a little bit of the backstory of why we're doing this episode in the first place. Pete, Alex, what do you guys have in, in common or, or shared interest that, that brings, us, uh, brings us here today? So I guess the, the, the catalyst, you know, Alex and I have been sort of bouncing ideas off each other for, for a while around, like, the kind of intersection of financial services and marketplaces, and then... At NFX, I, I published an article earlier this year, which uh, which we called um, "Fintech Enabled Marketplaces." And I, you know, I just know from our internal data, this was like I think one of the the most popular articles we've ever written, um, and it resonated with a whole bunch of people. And then, and, and Alex, so I kind of rekindled a conversation about that, and I guess kind of that's that's here we are. Is that is that same same your your recollection as well, Alex? Yeah, Pete, that, that is my recollection. You know, um, I think from two different directions, you and I uh, kind of stumbled upon a similar trend that we were seeing in the marketplace, both of us spending a decent amount of time on marketplace businesses. And I know on our end, we've been thinking a lot about the evolution of online marketplaces. And the thing that I kind of observed was that, you know, the newer ones just needed to take more risk to create liquidity than they did before. They need to do more work and they need to actually centralize risk on their platform. And, uh, you know, I, I think that necessitates often creating a financial services business in the middle. Um, so it's an interesting hybrid business model. And I think we could talk through a few examples of that. Yeah, let's get into that. So let's start from the beginning. Why, why do marketplaces have to, to, to take more risks? And what, is, what does that mean practically? And why are we seeing this? I think it's, uh, to start, it's a function of where we're at in the evolution of the technology cycle. You know, when applications that were consumer facing first started to arise on the internet. The first marketplaces were like eBay or Craigslist, maybe if you're thinking about listings. And these were simple places where buyers and sellers could just connect with one another. Uh, and if you look at eBay at its IPO, you know, it had a roughly a 6% take rate, 90% gross margins and positive net income when it went public. So, you know, with those economics, you get the sense that it was kind of just skimming from the top. If you compare that to uh, Lyft, for example, a marketplace business, which went public recently, this is a business with 46% contribution margin, so a lot lower. Um, the difference between that and something like eBay is there's a ton of extra technology, extra payments, fraud, insurance, all sorts of stuff that they have to do to enable that marketplace to exist. But in exchange, Lyft has a 26% take rate, so much higher. And if you looked at it on a dollars, equal dollars of GMV basis, Lyft extracts about twice the profit from a transaction than eBay does for the same amount of bookings. So what we, what we saw over those couple decades is marketplaces that just are doing more work to create higher take rate and create liquidity. And all I'm saying is the next wave of that, the, the other work that has to be done for the next wave of marketplaces is to really take on the risk and take that away from both sides and centralize it. And I think one of the first examples of this might have been Airbnb itself. You know, when they uh, announced that they were going to uh, give insurance to hosts in case uh, the guests wrecked their place, well, that opened up a lot more liquidity because it made hosts more open to listing their, their place on the, on the uh, website. 
and there's a number of other examples now that are more looking more like financial services businesses, um, which we can get into if you like. I think, I think just, from a, just from a first principles perspective, you look at marketplaces, really they have, um, as the case in many businesses, they're really two kind of imperatives that they have. The, the first is obviously uh, improving the end user experience. Um, and the second is increasing their take rate or their, their value capture. And so from just that first principle perspective, that has guided so much of marketplace evolution. It's manifested itself in sort of in a number of different themes. So that's sort of verticalization or, you know, that some people have sort of called it the sort of uh, splintering of Craigslist. Um, so natural verticalization of, of kind of these horizontal platforms or poorly generalist platforms into vertical specific versions and going full stack enables them to improve that experience, but often, often also, which is equally important, is capturing more of the transaction. You've also seen it in mobilization, which is again, a kind of putting a product to where the consumers like to use that, use that product experience. And so you've seen this, you know, whether it's the kind of mobile version of a kind of, you know, a pre-existing service or a full stack version of a pre-existing service, there is this kind of, inordinate rise um, and frankly unstoppable rise to improve the consumer experience and improve the the number of the the dollars you capture from that transaction. And then you look at where the kind of like large greenfield opportunities that exist within the internet today, financial services come screaming kind of like front and center saying, well, this is a terrible user experience for most people that interact with it. Huge amounts of friction, particularly when you have multi-party transactions, you know, whether that's kind of insurance for a homeowner that wants to rent it out or a a prospective home buyer that wants to purchase a property or a small business that wants to get something done. Like these multi-party transactions take, they're terrible. There's huge amounts of kind of inefficiency and cost in that. And so, you know, one phrase that we like is the money's in the money. Um, So (laughs) the money's in the money and, and you're applying that on top of, this kind of incredible business model, which is which is marketplace and the network effects that come out of that, means that, that, that we think the kind of next wave of these enormous marketplace businesses will be this this blend between marketplace and, uh, and financial services. And I think it's you know one way to look at it is, uh, is you know is, is is risk, but you can think of risk broadly defined. I think you you look at where the core financial services products exist, whether that's insurance, that's banking, that's financing and lending, like all of those are kind of in the business of managing risk, but they all are kind of crappy businesses that have been designed in these quite horizontal contexts. You know, you see in these industries that massive horizontal insurance providers or banking providers, and they really have lost sight of their own consumer. So this is kind of where we see a whole range of new startups emerging that we, we think are going to be transformative in their user experience, enables them to unlock value in a way that track consumers away from perhaps an incumbent just in the way that Airbnb did in back in its day and then also capture huge amounts of value enabling them to build these sustainable independent entities. What what are examples of these startups that that are emerging or or, or what might they look like? I could give you one example from our own portfolio and that's a a company called FAIR, uh, F-A-I-R-E. So the founders of FAIR were actually at Square before they started the company. And um, they were very interested in small business. 
And in particular in the U.S., there's about a long, there's a long tail of about a million small retailers, you know, call it a million dollars in revenue or less. These retailers have largely bought stuff for their stores through an old school trade show network or sales agents um, who take a big chunk of the transaction. Um, so these are these stores are all over the place. It's on any main street here in San Francisco. Maybe you're walking down Valencia Street and to your left and to your right, you'll see a lot of these stores. So the question is, we're in the age of, you know, eBay and Amazon and all these things. Well, why, why are these guys not transacting online? And the, the reason they, they, they figured out was that retailers fundamentally are risk averse when they're small businesses. Because if you buy a bunch of inventory and it doesn't sell, you're stuck with it. You have no resale channel. You have no way to liquidate. You can't usually return it to the manufacturer. So they just don't try new stuff as often as they probably should. So FAIR tried this experiment where they said, well, what if we guarantee the item will sell or we'll take it back and then we'll extend you net 60 payment terms on that inventory? And what happened was for the first time, a lot of these retailers started trying new makers and they noticed that some of these new makers were selling. FAIR then used that data to power an algorithm that drove recommendations of other things those people should buy because it turns out once you have tens of thousands of retailers and thousands of brands on your platform, you can start doing a lot of pairwise matching using data science. And so they ended up creating this data asset that drove more sales and created this flywheel. And so it's a good example of a kind of a financial innovation. In, in some ways, it almost looks like they're lending inventory to see if it sells. But on the back end, um, they actually are in a better position than any other market participant to determine what's going to sell in what store. So it looks like a lending business where we're effectively underwriting inventory to these, um, these retailers. And it's the thing that created liquidity. There were, this market's you know, close to a trillion dollars of GMV, but no one's touched it in the U.S. because no one's been able to figure out how to get liquidity in it until, until now. Another, another example from um, industry I'm familiar with is, is the real estate industry. If you look at the evolution of the online real estate industry but on the purchase side, um, you've seen this evolution from, you know, traditional listing companies through to uh, the launch of Trulia and Zillow. I was the founder and CEO of Trulia for many years. So that was our pitch 15 years ago. It was like, you know, these are terrible user experience and we wanted to innovate on the user experience initially. And then you've seen Redfin uh, evolve the transaction and more recently, Open Door, Zillow offers and a company we invest in called, called Ribbon, which is helping you buy your home to hold or you kind of sell your previous home, kind of you could think of it like bridge financing in some way. You're connecting in all these kind of most recent companies, they have they've raised large amounts of debt capital to facilitate transactions, give you a transformative user experience in a kind of really complex and stressful transaction. And I think one of the you know, I was I was on the Zillow board where when kind of there was initial evaluation around the sort of the, the cash transaction model and the and the you know, extensive research trying to figure it out. And the thing that became, came sort of loud and clear, which has since been talked about, is that there was, from a consumer perspective, there is a high productivity to spend to get a better user experience. And I think this is apparent to many of us, whether that's taking Uber Black or whether it's, if it's available and it's convenient, people will spend a lot of money for a great end consumer experience, which is, you know, I think, defies a lot of the conventional wisdom about these kind of big ticket items that you're not willing to spend, you know, whatever the six to 10% fee that these companies are providing. And it turns out there is a large and growing 
proportion of the population that will pay for that, that convenience. So, you know, the size of the asset class that is real estate enables this model to, to evolve and, and to have. And now you look at the kind of big companies in the space, um, Open Door, Zillow Group, Redfin, they are all experimenting with financing meets transaction, meets marketplace, um, some flavor of that. And it's completely transformed that industry or set to completely transform that industry over the next few years. Same in the kind of rental industry, you're seeing that happening. And I think perhaps, you know, to bring it up to today's day, if you, if you think of marketplaces generally and you think about this sort of relentless drive to integrate financial services into a marketplace, the announcement of Facebook and Libra is yeah. exactly a fintech-enabled marketplace. This is kind of like there is inevitability about connecting participants, whether that's sort of social commerce, you know, but also you've got you know, Facebook's marketplace, you've got WhatsApp, trying to figure out how to monetize that. This is they're absolutely deeply integrating financial services product into a kind of marketplace dynamic, and they're using the trust and, and data layer that they've built up and the relationships in, in the sort of traditional marketplace and implementing this financial services product, which is ultimately what it is, into that, which creates huge utility for a portion of that, you know, their target audience. And I'm sure they'll be able to figure out a way to make a lot of money from it. And so that, that's, it's, you know, I think the, the blockchain component is kind of relevant, but also irrelevant as right. well. So as I was saying, kind of Apple launching the Apple Cloud, in deeply integrating a, uh, an Apple uh, a financial services product into a two-sided platform creates great utility for their monetization. So I think this is going to be, incumbents are going to incorporate it, many will fail, but also new startups will implement this and create breakthrough experiences or, or, or give them the economic base to create significant value. That's a great example, um, several great examples. Another one that I think is worth paying attention to is it's not really a I don't think by strict definition of marketplace business, but if you look at any of these online schools that are offering income sharing agreements, you're also starting to see a shift towards centralizing risk. And so if you think about what an income sharing agreement is fundamentally, it's, it's transitioning the financial burden for figuring out if this student is going to make it from the student predominantly to the platform. Um, so when you say, I'm going to take 10% of your first year's income as my compensation, you are taking risk that the student who you paid for to acquire as the customer, and then you paid for to run through your program um, and take a risk on representing them to your hiring partners is going to perform at that job. Um, so effectively, you're almost like underwriting that student with your admissions criteria. And it's a really good thing, actually, if you think about it, because you're effectively aligning in a really concrete way, the outcome of the institution with the student um, by focusing on the income sharing. There's also ways you can go wrong, but I think that that idea of like looking at the educational institution as an underwriting body and underwriting on emissions is something that could really transform education and get a lot more people into educational institutions than those who would previously have had to go either pay for themselves or go borrow and go into debt. And as we all know, you know, the student debt crisis is just massive in this country. So um, I kind of think that's almost a financial innovation that, that we'll start to see at the center of, of education marketplaces. For, for a few of these examples, let's say, you know, Lambda, Fair, Ribbon, what's the, what's the why now? Like, why couldn't these marketplaces be, you know, be enabled five years ago or, or why not five years from now? Well, I think there are 
a number of kind of key catalysts right now. So one is that consumer experiences are changing. Like I said, around the kind of Zilla open door experience, people will pay for convenience and they're used to it. Let's face it. We're like, you know, we're used to, uh, you know, pressing a few buttons and we can reserve a treehouse in South Africa just like that. It's remarkable. Yet if I want to kind of purchase a car or I want to purchase a home or, you know, if I'm a small business, want to do something, it's incredibly complex. So you just get your, your tolerance for friction is, is changed dramatically. Two is that you already got money flowing through these marketplaces. So you've got people comfortable with, with uh, online commerce and you've got pre-existing marketplaces, whether it's Apple, they've all your cards or Facebook, you've got credit cards there, or whether it's, um, you know, a, a sort of Airbnb where you've got money flowing through the system. Three is the sort of aggregation of data and the sophistication of the machine learning. You know, the, the machine learning doesn't always start out complex, but over time in competitive markets, it necessarily has to be more complex. You've got kind of machine learning and AI and data availability centralized. It gives you a kind of a view on that. Um, and then fourth is the, broadly the availability of capital and the financial infrastructure to enable this. You know, there are companies that provide ISA services to a kind of, to, to other participants. There's Stripe, you know, there's Plate, there's a number of other the kind of infrastructure pieces that have been put in place, plus just an availability of capital. Like this is to, to take, to manage risk, you obviously need to have kind of sort of a scalable uh, financial infrastructure to, to manage that. And that, you know, that we're in a kind of pretty good period for that. Plus there's a recognition that kind of software is permeating everything we do. And there's significant capital, which is going to back great ideas and great businesses. I think those are all great why nows and, I, I just add one more to the uh, to the list, which is to say that you know it wasn't usually the case that tech startups needed to think about raising tons of debt to finance these types of business models. That wasn't a thing that was very common until about ten years ago, when you saw the sort of the initial kind of cohort of these businesses starting to get built, and then you had people who came out of the banking you know, private equity world, financial services world who came into startups and built up, you know, what are really capital markets and risk functions in those businesses. And now they're all onto their second or third companies doing this role. So we've seen kind of the capital markets uh, chief risk officer role rise up and you kind of need that, that function. And it previously didn't exist. As a good example, you know, we're investors in a company called Affirm and uh, our chief risk officer, was previously the chief credit officer at Lending Club, which was one of the Gen 1 companies. And prior to that, he was a Capital One. So I think you're starting to see um, the core competency of underwriting come to more of these marketplace-like businesses. And that's a very important thing because it's really the profit driver. And really on a global scale, we invested in uh, Adi, which is sort of the firm for Latin America, which is starting to see these you know, global equivalents pop up. How broad will the, will this trend go? Like, do you think this will work in healthcare, for example? We just talked about education with Lambda. But how about healthcare? What do you think about some other categories where it might be tougher? You know, I think it's all about finding the application area in healthcare that, for example, and we're just talking about healthcare, but if you think about healthcare, there's a ton of different places where you might apply logic to this. You could look at it in, you know, the renting of equipment or um, the purchasing of consumables in hospitals. Or you could look at it at for healthcare staffing. In each of those cases, you can think about how between marketplace participants, the platform can take on more risk to enable liquidity. And in some cases, it might not be that valuable. Um, in other cases, it might be more. 
So it's really, um, it's hard to paint with a too, too broad a brush, but my, my view is it, it requires a very deep understanding of the industry. You know, I don't think FAIR could have been started had Max and Daniele and Marcelo had not spent five years inside of Square grappling with the problems of these small businesses. You, they tend to come out of these very, very um, specific jobs because it's all about the dynamics of that particular market. We talked about a little bit of the, the opportunities around these businesses, but the, Alex touches on a, a point, which is this, the necessary co- complexity and often the, 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 the forming, the founding DNA of the team is, is particularly important. Like, cause you have to go to blend this kind of like incredible product instincts that gives you a large, you know, whether it's um, consumer or SMB or you've got to have incredible product instincts to have a breakthrough value proposition because the, the bar is getting increasingly higher. Plus you've often got a like sophisticated machine learning or statistical or analytical capability to kind of match the risk profile. Plus, you've got to be a credible kind of partner to the, the capital markets or debt providers. Plus, you've got to be thoughtful and sensitive about the regulatory environment and industry participants for, for these massive opportunities. It doesn't need to be there day one. It's a rare DNA to kind of to be able to navigate those, those experiences. And we've moved on from two founders and a, and a mobile app. Like, it's so much harder to kind of build these businesses, but the opportunity is that much greater. To go back to your thing about medical, the healthcare industry, I, I absolutely think so. I'm very hopeful. I think you have seen, you started to, see, you know, when you look at, you, if you sort of break down, okay, banking, financial services, insurance, like healthcare is just, you know, healthcare insurance is just an enormous industry. Yeah. Um, and in the same way we talked about that Lambda School is innovated on the education side to provide greater alignment between the different participants and that hopefully will come out to greater outcomes. You know, obviously there's some societal kind of conversations about kind of that, that model, but regardless, I think you've got to have this, this deep alignment between participants. You know, anyone that's kind of spent time in the U.S. understands the deep misalignment often between participants in the healthcare industry. We've got competing priorities. And so if there is a, and you're starting to see elements of this in certain, uh, certain therapeutics where there's kind of deeper alignment in the business model, um, more outcome-based, you know, as in the case of Lambda score, which is, you know, gets dramatic traction with employers. And obviously they've got an sort of imperative and incentive to kind of create a great product at the end of the day. So I think, I absolutely think it will come. There's this chart, which, you know, many people, you know, spread quite virally on on the internet, which is really about the kind of nominal value increase of various different products or services over the last 20 plus years. But, you know, you've seen cars, the sort of price per Cars come down, TVs come down, software come down, but you've seen student loan, student loan, student textbook, and certainly um, kind of the healthcare industry go up. In particular, in construction too. And and it's like, you know, I think there there is deep misalignment, and there's also obviously a bunch of regulatory capture in there. Um, Regulation is harder to change, but it will be nibbled away at at the edges and and certain areas. So I'm, I'm hopeful but it's, it takes a special kind of entrepreneur yeah. to go through the brain damage of some of these kind of some of these businesses in the healthcare, the healthcare industry. Are, are you guys doing much in, in these regulatory regulated market uh, education or, or, or healthcare or, or construction? Alex, perhaps. Well, we're certainly looking at a lot of them. I think every every industry has its own peculiarities, and 
um, you really do have to kind of lean into the entrepreneur and hear what their insight is in terms of how the market is structured and how a marketplace can function and where the value capture comes from. So, um, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't rule anything out. I, I think the, the only thing I would say is because your initial question was, where does this not work? The things that I've, I've tended to steer away from tended to be where you, you have uh, consolidation on one side of the marketplace or the other. And so a good example of that would be something like food services. So, you know, restaurants buy tons of produce every year um, of all sorts of different types, but it's hard to build a marketplace in there because you have a very fragmented base of restaurants, but then you have very consolidated base of suppliers because food needs to be warehoused. And so these uh, firms that warehouse it often break bulk and deliver to those restaurants. Let's think of Cisco or U.S. Foods. And so if you have really three marketplace participants on the supply side and a whole bunch of restaurants, you'll never really be able to have leverage on the supply side. So I think this concept works the best when you have very fragmented supply and demand. And that's also when the sort of the financing aspect creates the most value because it turns out both of those parties don't lack the scale to be able to, to take their own risk. So um, that's probably the one area I would say is predictive of, I wouldn't say failure, but just difficulty. You know, uh, Ben Thompson had this uh, from Stratechery had this great post recently or maybe a while ago about, uh, about Zillow uh, and Open Door, and that it was uh, sort of thesis was that it's not enough just to be an aggregator for lead gen, but you had to be involved in the transaction somehow. It's you know, a different but related topic to what, you know, what, what we're talking about now about these sort of integrated marketplaces. I'm curious for areas in which that hasn't worked as well, perhaps social, like, you know, you know Facebook is doing, we're just talking about Libra, but it tried payments and, and messenger before conversational commerce was a thing for a bit. Uh, you know, Twitter certainly thought about it. I'm, I'm curious why it hasn't worked in these places. And, and if you think it will, and maybe media is another way, you know, products on what I was building or helping build was certainly, you know, thinking about sort of the integration of media and commerce and we besides i guess pinterest we haven't really seen that take off in any any big way uh, like speed is in in uh, buzzfeed and, and cheddar and and much of other media stuff but how, how do you think about some of those ideas i, I think i would say that it, it's sort of happening it's not happening but it is happening i think where it's where you're trying to move fr- remove friction then you know and you, we talked about just some media examples like instagram and the shopping cart and like payments is like it's happening like yeah. instagram is like kind of um, become a sort of, you know, one of the largest e-commerce companies in the world. You know, today it's starting with a kind of providing sort of lead generation and then, you know, moving into the shopping cart. So where it's, where there's a sort of strong consumer or customer need, and just like anything, trying to change consumer behavior with an incremental product is is often pretty hard to do. But when you start to kind of build a, you know, remove significant amount, significant amounts of friction, then it can create these, then it, it can break through. And, and the, the mobile phone creates enormous friction for kind of payments and um, multi-party transactions, which is a, is a huge catalyst for kind of making some of these things happen. So we, we looked at a lot of these quote-unquote conversational commerce companies a few years ago, and I would say the frequency of, of them has, has declined in the last few years. And I, I think there are two big problems with most of those companies. One is I'm not sure it's the product experience most people want. So when you type a search into Amazon, it doesn't just return you one result. You, you actually want to scroll through listings and, and, and give your own opinion on 
the, the particular item you want to buy, you want to look at a bunch of different listings. It's not a linear experience. It's, it's a multi-step experience. So it, it turns out that like, that's how most buying behavior is. And um, there's very few things where you want to ask a question and get the one thing you want to buy. And by the way, the, those use cases, I think, are, are more commodity and probably things you've already bought before. So it's more of a reordering behavior. But the challenge with any new company is you can't just bootstrap a company on reordering because some, that, that customer has to start somewhere. So, you know, I think Amazon's probably in the best position to offer compelling conversational commerce service through Alexa, one, because it owns the voice platform, but, you know, two, because it, you have order history with it. And that was just a, tr a tricky thing structurally for startups to contend with. The second piece is just where we are with regards to natural language processing or where we were, I would say, with natural language processing three years ago because uh, it's gotten a lot better. But, you know, it's still not good enough to uh, purely work on an algorithmic basis for a general inquiry. Um, and so startups had to choose between having a kind of automated product experience that was relatively low cost because it didn't involve humans, but was kind of crappy for the user, or they could substitute with humans, but then the cost structure didn't support a, a sort of a consumer app. Um, and so these businesses wouldn't have, did not have good gross margins and were not able to scale. So you, know, you had on one side a product issue, on the other side a business model issue. And that's why I think most of these businesses didn't end up working out. Interestingly, we've actually seen this work better in the enterprise. So we're investors in a company called TripActions. And TripActions provides a consumer-like experience for booking and managing your travel um, as a business user. And that, when we fact, effectively uh, has, has travel agents on the other end. Um, that are kind of helping you rebook flights and move hotels and doing all the things that are kind of a headache for you as a consumer, but they can do on the back end. And, you know, that's a business with very healthy gross margins. Um, but because it's serving enterprises, they can charge, you know, a lot more. And because it's business customers, these, the value of these trips is a lot higher. So we just haven't seen it, it work out, I think, for a variety of reasons on the consumer side. How do you think about in sectors that might seem too niche? For example, you guys at Lightspeed did Zola. You wouldn't necessarily think that the wedding industry is ripe for a, for a, for a unicorn, whereas other fields like uh, you know, Lux in, in sort of valet parking didn't necessarily work out. How, how do you think about areas that might seem niche and might first the ones that are actually niche and won't grow? Well, you know, weddings only seem niche until you get married and then you realize how much they cost. Um, <laughs> so the wedding industry is $100 billion just in the U.S., um, about 19 billion of that is registry. So it's actually quite a large business. I think the reason um, people have kind of poo-pooed it for a long time is that the biggest company in the space for maybe 15 years was, was the Knot. And that was a couple hundred million dollar a year business and basically flat. The, the real issue historically was that the only way you'd make money in, in, in weddings was through uh, advertising. But if you're only, there's only two or three million couples a year that get married. So if you're advertising to two or three million people, that's a, not a huge market for advertising. But if you can somehow get in the transaction flow, you know, Eric, as you, as you mentioned, you can access a much bigger pool of spending. And so um, Zola started as a gift registry. And, uh, you know, the why now with them was prior to, say, 2013, you really couldn't drop ship any of the types of items people get on a gift registry to a customer because not a lot of those brands were online yet. But when they all started coming online, the founders of Zola realized that they could push the inventory risk back onto the, to the vendors 
because they had such a long timeline between when the couple said, this is what I want, and when the, the, the brands had to ship it. And so if they could give with good predictive accuracy, uh, I know exactly how many Cuisinarts I need, the brands willing to take that risk. And the reason that's important is with, with, with home goods, the inventory costs are so high and they don't move very often. So previously, only department stores could have gift registries. But now with Dropship, Zola can build the first independent registry. So that thing took off. The registry product was a huge success. Um, it's hard to go to a wedding now and not have someone use Zola for their registry. But then what they realized was, well, this registry is really the gateway to the rest of the wedding. So we're also going to be able to bundle in your, your website, you, you know, all your invitations and paper goods, and a variety of other things you'll see coming out. But effectively, the, the goal is to use that registry as a way to drive a wedge into the wedding industry and capture you know, potentially that $100 billion of spend on a single platform. So I think it's in a stark contrast to, to the macro trend in, in that sector. And again, people look at department stores and they say, what a horrible business to be in. And it's true, it's been declining at about 3% a year for the last 16 years. But it turns out that like the fact that Amazon has decimated these department stores and really eaten their use case is kind of a good thing for Zola because while they're encumbered with their core business and can't focus on registry, it's kind of all Zola did for the first three to four years. So they can be really good at it. It's, um, I mean, the way that you frame, you know, from an investor perspective or a founder perspective, you start, if you can reframe the term going from kind of advertising or marketing fee into a, into basically the entire money flow within the system, then while your likely gross margins are going to be lower, <clears throat> the TAM becomes substantially bigger kind of overnight. And, 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 you, and you see a company that's ent entering this market. You see, you know, Airbnb is fascinating in terms of, you know, their transition from being purely a transactional marketplace into, you know, investing in a number of and acquiring a number of supply-side for service operators. And effects is only investors in, in Lyric, for instance. It's like, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, ton of supply on on airbnb and that and that's the distribution platform but the you know the tam that lyric operates is you know the order of magnitude bigger than you would have conceived of those sort of businesses a, a, a while ago and so and you so this opens up you know there's a you know obviously rules of thumb that various investors have around like what's the what's the time i need to look for but as soon as you start to kind of take over the user experience take over the money flow then seemingly niche businesses whether that's you know short-term stays or corporate housing or kind of other other services start to become these very venture backable businesses that, that look really interesting we were talking about income share agreements a bit earlier as it relates to education a little bit to healthcare. how big do you think that sort of financial instrument will, will be like how many how many sectors will it penetrate how all all encompassing will it be or will it be more of a, a niche thing applied to certain in industries like what, you know, unicorns will, will be built based on, on, on that, you know, sort of innovation. I, I haven't really made it past the education use case right now, because for me, that's such a big market. Uh, and clearly it's a market that's in crisis. It, there, there's a real reskilling that needs to happen for a, a big chunk of the economy as we move towards a service economy in the 21st century. And it's pretty clear that like taking a bunch of debt from the federal government is not the right way to finance uh, to finance that. It hasn't aligned incentives in the last 30 years, and it's probably not going to align them in the next 30 years. So 
what's yet to be seen is what the performance of this new crop of companies is. And, you know, this is an innovation that really started in the universities, but has really morphed into being used at, at, at even greater scale by these sort of next-gen vocational schools like Lambda. So, you know, you know we're just going to see what the performance looks like. I get a little worried when I see that some companies are selling off their book of ISAs to third parties yeah. to manage them. And what that means effectively is, you know, you have this, this capital risk that the person's maybe not going to perform at their job. And so there's some investors out there who will buy a basket of these ISAs uh, at some discounted price, which allows a school like a Lambda to just take that money in a lump sum up front. The challenge with that is it's a little bit like the mortgage origination crisis where you had people getting paid for origination, but not holding the mortgage on their own balance sheet. Now they're no longer aligned with the user. So I, I do worry that too much of that will sort of spoil the market. But by and large, I think with the right structures and guide rails in place, it could be a much better way to incentivize people to to get a good education that's going to ch- generate a salary increase, which is ultimately, I think, what a lot of people want. Now, I think what we've, in the evolution of uh, the internet and other industries, you've seen how you know, a business model innovation is rarely a sustainable lead. Um, it's everything else beyond that. You know, selling stuff online, it's kind of was a business model innovation, but kind of rarely sort of really sufficient to maintain a competitive advantage. So whether that's in the form of, you know, add, essentially it means adding other defensibilities, whether that's the form of brand, you know, Stanford, Harvard, a kind of as educational institutions have created phenomenal brands, incredibly defensible, and they're not going to be disrupted by, ISAs in the foreseeable future, whether that's network effects, whether that's other, other forms of defensibility and embedding. So the business model is like, is likely kind of necessary, but not sufficient. And so it's like in that industry itself is like, what, what can you build on top of that? You know, what, it, what can you build on top of that? And the companies, companies that do that effectively will be the ones that are, are going to be sustainable. That that's market specifically is, is, you know, the, there were some questions around like how broadly um, translatable it is into other kind of vocations other than software. And I, I think largely, absolutely. And whether that can be taken by one company or whether that will be splintering yeah. that, that product proposition across multiple companies. And then I, and then you look at the sort of international opportunity, which is, um, you know, human capital is, is, um, uh, is mobile and then different countries pay, they vastly different amounts for education, whether that's because they're government supported or whether that's culturally important for segments of the population. But as a as an opportunity to to drive global GDP, I think it's like it's pretty significant on the whole scheme of things what that can do. Let's uh, let's close with uh, what are your requests for startups in this space? What are you? most excited to see, you know, where you think there's, there's most opportunity for, for white space or, or you think people just haven't, haven't really done well yet? Well, I, I, I kind of think that the, the sort of financial services enabled marketplaces that I'm most excited to see are the ones that target um, small businesses. Um, that's not to say that consumer facing ones won't be interesting either, but I think the, the need is really large in sort of what I call micro firms. There's about 20 million Americans that work in small businesses with fewer than 20 employees. The average is about four employees or less because they don't act like enterprises. Uh, they don't, they don't have like a staff to evaluate pieces of software that are sitting in front of them. So they're more likely to participate in software that enables them to buy things they need for their business. 
and that that software will tend to be spread more like consumer product than like enterprise software. So what the, what that looks like is maybe the categories like professional services. I do think construction is one of these massive categories that's going to see one of these. Um, there are certain uh, sort of verticals of healthcare. Um, I think where you can where you can find an assertion point. For example, medical staffing is a big one. You know, fair as I said is is doing executing this playbook in, in retail. And you know, while you know, I'm I'm not necessarily excited about sort of the restaurant food purchasing vertical, I do think there is something that's going to work in the food supply chain for this because again, it's such a massive thing with with so much waste. Um, so I would really just look at almost any small business vertical where you have massive fragmentation on both sides. Think about what is being purchased, and then where can you alleviate some of the risk aversion by assuming the risk yourself as the platform. Well, I guess I, I would rather than perhaps request a startups, you know, NFX investor, the C stage, more like request a teams. But I think the the nature of the team to tackle these problems is is often the most challenging piece. And so, you know, the the ingredients of that team, and it, you know, again, doesn't need to be fully formed, but the ingredients of that team is just a, you know, typically you kind of like to see big markets that don't have too many incumbents in them. But if that's not the case, like, you know, a big market that is sleepy and just ready, right for disruption, because there's some sort of innovation or observation. And is that like with travel be an example there? Or like someone that hasn't had a, you know, big player in a while? Or what's an example of that? So what would be, so, I mean, I think the uh, education, healthcare yeah. could be interesting. I think yeah. they've kind of, a lot of people are sort of swings at it, um, but no one's really kind of done things as a home run basis. The, yeah. the problem with kind of well-developed internet companies is that, you know, let's just take travel. There's like half a dozen kind of companies that are worth $10 billion or more globally. Yeah. Like if they see an innovation happening from some one startup, they'll just deploy a hundred engineers overnight yeah. and kind of go off of that. So there's, you know, generally kind of big industries that are relatively sleepy or greenfield opportunities where there's, where there's not, many, not many sort of tech-enabled incumbents in there. The teams that can both match this deep kind of product sensibility uh, with deep industry understanding with a kind of appreciation of what it takes to build a kind of financial services layer as part of that. They don't need to be an ex-banker. Hopefully they're not, in fact, but they're like, they kind of need some sort of that appreciation of what it takes to kind of build a, a really powerful, significant player in you know, managing the enormous amounts of commerce that goes through these marketplaces. Yeah. And uh, last question, do you be, where within real estate are you most excited? Oh, all over. I think, um, I mean, real estate, we, we touched on it, like construction yeah. is kind of a massive opportunity and it's totally greenfield. There's like advances in computer vision and, and AI, which will kind of unlock value there. On the real estate side, I think you're still starting to, the sort of online brokerage business is kind of getting more mature, but it's deep in the transaction yeah. where, you know, there are some, still some big opportunities that is, that are kind of relatively untrapped, whether that's title and escrow, that, that kind of area is quite interesting, um, which is kind of generally overlooked by the average 20 year old engineer. And then I think the, the sort of future of living, but I think it's, you know, unlike perhaps the future of work, which is, you know, we work is generally kind of homogenous experience. You kind of expect predictability. The future of kind of, of where you live is very heterogeneous. Like, you you know, we all yeah. want to live yeah. in kind of slightly different places. So there's a, a great productivity to um, self-expression. And so brands, communities, 
niche experiences in a, in a massive market, we, we think are very interesting as well. Guys, thank you guys for, for coming on. This has been a great episode. For people who want to learn more or who want to uh, get in touch with your respective firms, where can they, uh, where can they learn more? And, uh, Pete, yes, sir. Yeah, so NFX is a um, uh, seed fund headquartered in San Francisco. Kind of what makes us unique is that we've, we have three GPs that have founded 10 companies with exits of $10 billion, so unique founder DNA. And we are just at nfx.com. Yeah, and uh, this is Alex. Lightspeed is a uh, $7 billion global venture capital firm. We have offices here in Silicon Valley, as well as in Israel, India, and China. So we invest all over the world in consumer and enterprise uh, technology companies from seed all the way up through uh, very large growth rounds. And uh, if you want to check us out, you can follow me on Twitter. Um, I'm A. Tausig on Twitter. And then I write a weekly newsletter called Drinking from the Firehose, which you can sign up for at firehose.bc if you're so inclined. Yeah, I, I highly recommend uh, recommend listeners do. Uh, and NFX has a lot of great uh, writings on, on Medium that you should, uh, you should explore. Alex, Pete, thank you both so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 